Colossians, uh, and we're looking at Colossians 1 and 2 today, Colossians 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, and you'll see that the Bible passage, actually I've extended it a little bit over, over, the, over my preparations. I thought we'll only do verses 24 to 29 today, but uh, as I got into it, I thought, oh, hang on, actually 24 to 2 verse 4 is probably the, the right section. So they were right in putting a heading over that. Paul's ministry to the church. And um, if you're ready, I'll read for us. It's Paul, and he uh, writes to the Colossians, uh, and after he, he told us how he gives thanks to the Lord for the Colossians and how they've come to faith, he tells them about how Christ is all-sufficient, how Christ provides everything they need. Uh, and so don't be thrown off. I'll start reading, and there'll be a line in there you think, hang on, it sounds like Christ isn't enough. What's going on here? Just pause that thought. I'll explain it. But Christ is enough. That's what you need to know. Okay, here we go. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I become a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Let's read that again. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Can't wait to get into that. Verse 27. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Parents, that's the verse. If you want to capture all that Paul is going to say in this passage, verse 27 is the one. If you want to go home with your children, you teach them verse 27. If children, if you want to memorize verse 27, you come and teach it to us, we'll be thankful. To them, here's verse 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great the struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Let me pray again. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this word and thank you for bringing this to us. It is just packed full of gospel goodness. And we ask that we will eat and be filled and be satisfied as we study this, uh, this passage now. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Oh man, I'm going to give you three headings that you can remember. The first one is being one with God. I'm going to focus on that, being one with God. And then the next heading is going to be proclaiming him. Being one with God and proclaiming him is going to be the second heading. And then the third one, why? For maturity. For maturity. Why? For maturity. One with Christ, proclaiming him for maturity. The last two, I'll probably not spend that much time talking about, but the first, uh, first one certainly is the one that blew my mind as I started to look into it. And the key verse there is, as we said to the children, to them God chose. That's who's the them? The saints, to the saints, to the church, to the Christians. God chose to make known, to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. What is this mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You see, Esther chose one of the songs afterwards to focus on this hope, this hope that we have. It's a living hope. But this hope comes to us through the fact that, that Christ is in us. But Christ in us is a radical idea. In fact, it's so radical that if I were to try and explain to you how Christ is in us, you'll, we won't get it. We just, it's just such a difficult thing. So children, you remember last time we said Colossian, Paul wrote to the Colossians, and the Colossians were two groups. Can you remember what those two groups were? They were divided up into two groups. One group were pagans. Pagans. They were people that had little mini-gods. There's a BBC documentary you can watch about uh, Roman civilization, and people had lots of little mini-gods that they had in their pockets. God wasn't in them. God was in their pocket. That's what they had. They had loads of them. In fact, you'll come and visit a friend, and he'll have his own sort of household god that he, that he used, and they would all be packed up on his mantelpiece there. They'll be looking after these little figurines that they've cut out. They've paid someone to make it for them. So the idea that God is in you, phew, they would just go, no ways. No ways God is in us. God is in my pocket. That's the best, but he's not in me. But, Christ, but Paul is saying to them, here's the mystery, Christ in you. That is the hope for glory. And the other group, so that's the group, one group of pagans. The other group were, were Jews. We're, were really small-minded, legalistic Jewish people that said, no, God is too great. His glory is untouchable. He's unapproachable. God is not in my pocket or in me. God is in the temple in Jerusalem. That's where God is, on the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God is. Christ in you. Are you have you gone mad, Paul? Paul is saying, no, 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 no. This is it. This is the mystery of being a Christian. A Christian is a, a person with Christ in them. A Christian is a person with Christ in them. So I can carry on explaining as much as I want to. You'll still not get it. So let me try and use biblical language to help you see the picture of Christ in you. Now, uh, perhaps you've heard of this uh, relationship where two unique entities become one. Perhaps you've attended an event where two people walk into the church as two individuals, and then apparently they leave as one. Have you attended a wedding recently? That's what happens. That's what happens. A man and a woman goes into the building as two individuals, 
And, and there we hear Mark 10, God, Jesus speaks about this. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Then Jesus adds this line. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. You see, here's two people that's, that's become one. When they leave the church, they're all of a sudden spiritually one because Jesus said they're one. They're legally one because they've signed the marriage uh, registrar with the vicar. And they are socially one. Their families and everyone around them just throw confetti perhaps on them or celebrate with them that they are now one. And everyone acknowledges that there is now a marriage here. And so two entities have become one. They are now in each other. This language is, of course, a bit of a euphemism, and I'll leave parents to explain 1 Corinthians 7, but you can go read the first six verses of 1 Corinthians 7, and it says this, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Oh, yeah, that's to be expected from Paul. The wife doesn't have authority over her own, building, uh, own body, the husband does. Yeah, 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 submit, that's what Paul says. Uh -uh. Paul blew their minds because he then said, likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Why? Because they're one. They've become one. There is this mystery of Christ in you, and God gave us a picture that can walk around in churches like ours where some people are married. It is a picture of two people who are now spiritually, legally, and socially one. He has authority over her body, and she has authority over his body. They are one. It's a mystery. But it's radical. It's a radical picture, a weak picture, of Christ's union with us, his church. I always store up good illustrations so that I can use them at special events. And this is a special event. I'm going to use my illustration I've saved up. But uh, Pete, you are going to feature in my illustration just now. Can you just show us your ring for a moment? Do you not have it on today? Oh, I should have warned him. Perhaps you've seen that Pete sometimes has a, a ring on his, on his pinky right there. It is a seal ring. Is that what it's called? It's got another name. A signet ring, of course. That's what it is. So I recently received a communication from Pete that uh, was sealed with a bit of wax on the back. And it had his signet in, which is a Talbot, which I'm told is a dog. Is that right? It's a dog. So that's how I knew this was from Pete, this dog that was on the signet. But, but here's the lesson. The lesson is, is that, that that picture that I have there on my envelope in the wax is an imprint of the real thing which he has on his finger. Well, mostly, not today, but has on his finger. I'm actually told that he doesn't use the actual ring to make the signet. He has an actual signet thing to make the thing, but we'll leave that there. But the point is, as you look around church... Uh, and, and you see married couples, uh, and, and, and you think, what's marriage all about? You need to know that marriage is all about the union between Christ and his church. That's what marriage is. But they are weak representations in the same way that the seal, the imprint that I had on my wax envelope was a weak representation of the real thing which he has on his finger. Christ is fully committed to help us understand what it means when he says, Christ in you. 
He's so committed that he's taken some of us as single human beings and he's put us together with other people to be married to other people in order to image union between two people so that we can get an idea of Christ. Christ is, is the bridegroom who has dressed his bride with beautiful clothes so that one day there will be the marriage supper of the Lamb where the two will then in actual fact become one and so that all that I know is true at the moment, I am one with Christ, Christ is in me, I will then know for sure and viscerally, I will be able to see him face to face. And Christ said, I want to make sure that you understand that union with me is such a real thing as union between two people is a real thing, a spiritual, social, and legal union that even in God's providence leads to children. It is an incredible concept when you understand union with Christ. Now let's get to that red herring. I'm still my first heading, one with Christ. Now let's get to the question. The question that some of you might have, what does it mean that it says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction? That's verse, what's it, verse 24. I'm filling up. You might have a question. You think, how is it that Paul can add to Jesus? I thought Jesus' death on the cross was done and finished. It's enough, paid, boom. How is he now filling up? There's something lacking in Jesus' death? That can't be. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here? Christ and his body, the church, is one. They are all one. And, and when Christ suffered, the head went to the cross. The tail was yet to come. The head went into the cross. And through the cross into death. And through death into heaven to be with God. And the tail follows through all the way. The church being one with Christ, is being afflicted because we're one with Christ. The same afflictions that Christ bore on the cross will eventually also be ours, not because we can add something to the merit for salvation. We're not earning our salvation. Christ earned our salvation. It is just a consequence of being one with Christ. fill up what is lacking. What, what is lacking? Christ's death on the cross. Even Paul tells us earlier in this passage, you can look at verse 21, he says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach with him. It doesn't say he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death and as you suffer, lack, filling up what is lacking in his death, to present you holy and blameless. No, no, it's all done in Christ. We can't add anything to it. It's not Jesus plus our suffering. Our suffering is not giving us salvation. <laughs> salvation. Something just flew and it woke someone up. <laughs> it's your pen. That's great. <laughs> not filling up anything because Christ's death is fully and complete. So what is Paul meaning when he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, the church. He's an apostle of the church, and we know that, Christ, uh, that, that Paul is suffering. He is suffering throughout his ministry. He tells us often about his suffering. In fact, just in chapter 2, we'll hear that he says, how great the struggle I have for you, those that are, are at Laodicea. He's struggling for them. You read the Acts, and you read his epistles, and you see the struggle that Paul had. You see, struggle was part of Paul's life. But it doesn't come from nowhere. He's struggling that he has. He's struggle that he has is as it was told to him. Now, let me show you something on the screen. You can, 
You don't have to turn to uh, Acts 9. But in Acts, Paul gets called as an apostle. Uh, he is on his way to Damascus. And, and, and as he's traveling on his way to Damascus, it, it turns out uh, that a light from heaven flashed around him, verse 4. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Just take a moment there. What is persecuting me? Persecuting me. Saul isn't persecuting me. Jesus is in heaven, right? Jesus is in heaven. Paul was on his way to Damascus to do what? To go and grab Christians. That's what he tells us earlier. But Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's on his way to capture disciples of the Lord. And now Jesus appears to him and says, why are you persecuting the disciples of the Lord? No. Why are you persecuting me? Why? Because they are one. Christ's body is the church. And Jesus is saying to him, you're persecuting me when you persecute them. And so Paul then we find out in this passage, he comes to faith in the Lord and he becomes uh, an apostle for the Lord. Uh, a man appears to him uh, that the Lord sent, Ananias. You can see here in verse 13. Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, when we read this passage in Colossians, it says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Paul is aware of the prophecy that was given to him that he will still suffer. In fact, everywhere he goes, he hears that he will have to go to Jerusalem and there suffer much. In this sense, Paul's suffering was unique as the apostle that God has called to this task of suffering for the sake of his name. It's actually quite interesting if you think the man who was used to bring suffering on the church, who's persecuting Christians, is now turned around. He is now the one enduring suffering as he's bringing relief. And that might explain why Paul starts in, uh, in, 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 John, in Colossians 1. He says, now I rejoice in what? In my sufferings. <laughs> For Paul, the apostle, there is great joy in his sufferings because he is reminded that he is suffering as Christ has ordained him to suffer. So we could say that part fits with Paul. That's Paul's unique calling. But the further point still stands. You persecute me when you persecute the church. There is a radical union between Christ and his church. Now, we get to point two, to proclaim him. That's what Paul tells us in this passage. He says, uh, I'm filling up what is lacking, all these afflictions. Verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me. That was, that's what happened at Damascus. God gave him the stewardship of preaching the gospel to make the word of God fully known, to make the word fully known. Now, tell us about this word. He says, it's a mystery that was hidden for ages and generations. That's Old Testament. But is now revealed to his saints. 
That's Jesus who came and revealed himself. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. God made known the mystery. What is the mystery? The mystery is this. There's riches in the Gentiles. Why? Because Christ now lives in these Gentile Christians, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Then Paul says in verse 28, him we proclaim. Him we proclaim. That's my second point. Him we proclaim. I'm not preaching Christianity. I'm not preaching church. I'm not preaching religion. I'm not preaching Canada Water Church. I'm not preaching charity. I'm not preaching good deeds. My job here today is to preach Christ, to proclaim Christ. And if you're a Christian, that is your job too. Now, I need to show you both of these things because this passage tells us about Paul's unique ministry as an apostle. But from there, we need to find out our unique ministry as Christ's church. Uh, a friend of, uh, of mine and a number of you might have met him. I know for sure Carl has and, and, and Pete has. David Cassidy. He is celebrating today. He's 40 years in ministry. Now He's a wild guy. I mean, he is just, he tells stories of how wild he was in his youth. And he was a, a, a charismatic church planter when he's in his 20s. He had no church. He had no education, church or theology education. He was walking the streets uh, around Victoria at that time, just preaching the gospel to people. And, and a church got started around there. And this church sort of grew to a place where he realized, oh, my goodness, I've got no training to do what I'm doing here. This is mad. I should. So he asked someone else to come and take over the church that he started. And he went off and trained for theology. Uh, he's now a Presbyterian minister and a minister of a, a fairly large church somewhere in the States. And he is now celebrating his 40 years in ministry. And so he, he wrote this, uh, and Augustine did the same thing. Every time he thought about his ministry, an anniversary of his ministry, he would write a little thing about it. But, but this is what David Cassidy wrote about it. He says, I'm tired. Yeah, that's just the first line. On its own, I'm tired. No one told me how tired I'd be after 40 years. <laughs> no one told me how heavy some of the burdens are that pastors carry, how hard they were to leave with Jesus. There have been so many funerals, tears, and shipwrecks, too many divorces, the pain of which often eclipses the joy of weddings, church splits, friendships interrupted and demolished, anger, disappointment, unrealized expectations, no one, put, no one told me that even if I desired to preach until I die, and I do, that there would be days I didn't feel strong enough to do so, that I would feel far more deeply the emptiness of crucified self-sufficiency than the zealous passion of envisioned youthfulness. I did not know, though I heard it from others, how much my heart would break and my body become brittle and a very unfaithful servant to the cause I would become. May God have mercy. That's just a very real reflection on a man's ministry 40 years in. Real reflection on it. And so when it says in verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Verse 29, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He's saying there are 
preachers and there are congregations. That's what Paul is saying, and that's what church history tells us, that, that there is something different going on here, that the Lord has called me to proclaim the gospel to you, and the Lord has called you to receive the gospel and to embody that gospel. You are not here just to listen and shrug your shoulders and say, that was entertaining, it was nice, kept me awake, killed the time, saw some people, great, let's go home. And that's not the point. The point is, so I preach, I proclaim Christ, I must do it with all wisdom, I must do it to everybody, I must warn, I must console, I must teach, I must struggle and toil to preach Christ, even if I get tired, as David Cassidy has become. But as I do this, you are called to embody, to embody uh, the gospel that you receive. Now, I can talk a little bit more about preaching. Some of that might be helpful. Um, but let me just stop there for a moment and take you to 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 4. I don't have it on the screen. You might have to look it up. Otherwise, you will struggle to follow with me. But this is how you embody the preaching of the word that comes at you. So let's do that. We'll see what it looks like if you embody the word proclaimed to you. Uh, and then I'll come back again to proclamation and what some of that entails. Uh, but 2 Corinthians 4, uh, it's on page 965. And just looking at verse 7 there. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, this mystery of Christ in you. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Life in you. Uh, that's what Paul is saying. He says, look, the apostles are, are these, 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 cars of, uh, these jars of clay with this mystery of the gospel in them, and it's shining through the cracks. As it's shining through us, and as we are being persecuted for the gospel that we proclaim, you need to recognize that the thing that's keeping us going is the life that is inside of us and the life that is inside of you. You need to recognize that. You need to realize that there is this life inside of you. The same life that you might hear orally from me as I'm speaking. Uh, you, you might see the same life in me causing me to want to bounce up and down as I preach and proclaim. This same life is the life that is in you, but in a different way. Now, the children might understand this example better than, than the adults because adults don't break things, do we? we? We look after things. But children, unfortunately, sometimes they break things. I'm often the one that has to stick things together. I've never broken a glass in my life. Of course not. Of course not. That's a lie, says Rachel. No, I've never broken anything. But if you come and visit my house, I think we've thrown it out now, but my grandmother gave me a plate, a yellow plate, uh, it's, it's a plate that if I go and visit her house as a student, she'll put some food in there for me, wrap it in a little clean foam or, or tin foil. I'll take this plate with me. 
And she's now passed away. She lived into 102 years of old, her age. And I took this plate and I just put it in our normal cutlery. We just used it every day. It was great. Every now and again, I'd get the lucky draw. I'd get a plate. Oh, it's grandma's plate. What a fantastic, probably the most treasured possession in our house, to be honest, until it broke. Of course it broke. At some point it just broke and it was broken into a hundred pieces. Uh, and I've always intended to take that plate and to glue it back together. You would have seen the cracks. You would have seen the cracks. I obviously have too much to do because I've thrown it out, but I, I thought I'd bring it with today. And, and, and we could have stuck it back together again. Uh, and I know, Kieran, you would have looked at it. You said, this plate, it's broken. I'd say, yeah, it's, it used to be broken. It's now useful. He said, how did you fix it? You know the answer? The answer to that is the answer to this whole spiritual lesson of this passage. Here's how I fixed it. Super glue. That's how I fixed it. It is the glue that fixed it. We are all like that. We are all people that are broken. We are dead in our sin. We are useless to God and to salvation. And then Christ came and he put us back together again. The life that is in us is Christ. That is the super glue that stuck us back together again, that made us whole again. That is why I proclaim him with my words, but that is how you proclaim him when with your own brokenness, people say, but you are a mess, but yet you're joyful. Your, your life, you're suffering. You're facing all kinds of persecution and difficulty. Why don't you just date non-Christians? And why don't you just give over to the drinking culture at work? And why do you look after your family? Why do you do all of this stuff? Why don't you just throw them to the wolves and run with the rest of us? And you say, no, because Christ picked me up and he stuck me back together again. It's his glue that is sticking me together. And that is why I'm alive. That is how you proclaim Christ. It's when people look at the brokenness in your life and you say, the only reason I'm still here today is because Christ brought me back together. You are proclaiming him when you're doing what I'm doing in the front right now. But there is a relationship here between the preacher and the congregation. And Augustine, uh, at, uh, at, the, at the event of his anniversary of his ordination, he tells the congregation this. So, so I'm telling you this. Please do what I'm about to tell you. He says, so let us pray together, dearly beloved that my tenure as bishop may be of profit both to me and to you. It will profit me if I tell you what has to be done, and you if you do what you hear. <laughs> you see, if we all pray tirelessly, I for you and you for me, with the perfect love of charity, we shall all happily attain, with the Lord's help, to eternal bliss. May he be graciously pleased to grant us this, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Augustine is saying, please pray for me. You pray for me, it will be for your own profit, by the way. I'll be able to preach the whole counsel of God with wisdom and with clarity because the gift of preaching is not a human-made gift. It's a gift from God for your benefit. I need to listen to the preaching myself. I need to be subject to the same way. I'm not the authority here. I'm the mouthpiece. And that's why you are liberated. Our service you see today particularly, I gave you lots of words to say. This is your service. You're not attending as a spectator. You are the, you are the jars of clay, and through you, through the cracks within you, the light of the gospel is shining. I'm here to equip you. Please pray for me 
that I'll do it well. I'll close now with proclaim, and then we'll move on with the last one very quickly. Uh, Augustine says this about preaching. He says, the turbulent have, been, have to be corrected. The faint-hearted has to be cheered up. The weak has to be supported. The gospel's opponents need to be refuted. Its insidious enemies guarded against. The unlearned need to be taught. The indolent stirred up. The argumentative checked. The proud must be put in their place. The desperate set on their feet. Those engaged in quarrels reconciled. The needy have to be helped. The oppressed have to be liberated. The good to be given your backing. The bad to be tolerated. All must be loved. That's the job of the preacher. <laughs> Pray for me as I do that. And pray that the Lord will raise many others up that will do the same. And then embody the word that is preached to you. Lastly, why? Verse 28. For maturity. For maturity. Now, I've closed my Bible, but there we go. Chapter 2, uh, chapter 1, verse 28. Paul says, for this, uh, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Present everyone mature in Christ. This is worth a, a whole sermon, so I'm going to end, end it here, but let me just say the following. Presenting someone, I made a joke last week when I, uh, when was it when I said about, you go to the temple and you bring your you bring your, oh, well, you introduce a friend. I know, Jamie, you've done this often. You bring a friend to me. You say, oh, this is my friend. He is, um, what's the line? Above reproach, holy and blameless, and above reproach. That's not a nice way of introducing a friend. I'm presenting my friend. He's holy, blameless, and above reproach. No, that's the language you use to present your offering to the temple. Holy, blameless, and above reproach. Uh, and so Paul is here saying, him we proclaim to present everyone mature in Christ. He's saying, my, my job is to present you to Jesus as someone that is now holy, blameless, and above reproach. But of course, he can't do it. He's, he, he can't make us holy, blameless, or above reproach. It is only Christ that can do that. So I bring you back to the beginning of the sermon. We said union with Christ is reflected in union in marriage between husband and wife. And the whole Old Testament is full of beautiful examples of God promising that he will dress, he will dress his bride with the righteous deeds that is from him. He is the one that will make her ready. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. So Paul says, I proclaim Christ. And as I'm proclaiming Christ, I'm clothing. God is clothing you with the garments of salvation. So what is the gospel supposed to do as it's being preached to you? It's supposed to dress you up. It's supposed to beautify you. It's supposed to make you humble and dependent and needy and confident and strong and in love. That's what the gospel is supposed to do. So that when you're done with it, you, you think, I, I've heard it all. God has done all of this. He is the one that has Chris preached to us. Can you remember Ezekiel 16? Chris preached how God came across us. There we were in our own blood. And he picked us up and he washed us and he cleansed us. He bathed us. Uh, and then he clothed us with embroidered cloth and shot us with fine leather. Uh, he wrapped us in fine linen and covered us with silk. He adorned us with beautiful ornaments and bracelets. 
Jesus came along and he dressed us with his righteous deeds so that we are ready to come into the presence of God. We're fit for the wedding supper of the Lamb. I want to ask that you too would be serving this Jesus with affection, not just with, with rote duty. This Christ who clothed you in this way, <laughs> he clothed you because he loves you. And he, and he longs for you to have what married couples, good marriages have, uh, and that is communication, that is verbal, that is physical, that is social. Uh, it, is, it is communication that's intimate, that is tender, that is real, that is honest, that's authentic. If you know of people that are happily married, if you are happily married, know that's only a chink of the real block, which is the real marriage in heaven. So I close with Timothy Dwight. We can't, I should have asked, see if we can sing this hymn, but Timothy Dwight, he writes in the, in the 16th century this beautiful hymn, and he says, I love thy kingdom, Lord. You can hear affection. He loves the house of thine abode, the church, our blessed redeemer, bought with his own precious blood. I love the church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, and graven on thy hand. For her my tears shall fall, for her my prayers ascend. To her my cares and toils be given, till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. Sure as thy truth shall last, to Zion shall be given the brightest glories earth can yield, and brighter bliss of heaven. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, we love your church. We love your church because your church is part of your body. As we love your church, we love you. We do not want to persecute you, and therefore you don't want to persecute your church. And so we ask that we will seek to build one another up in kindness and in love, that we will speak truth with one another, we'll seek each other's reconciliation, but we will just love the church and know as we love the church, we love you. We want to pray for the minister of this and other churches. We want to pray that your gospel, you, are clearly proclaimed. And as you are, that we will see the unity that we have with you. Father, we know that as this service comes to an end, we'll go out into a broken world. And we'll soon see that we are the broken people inside this broken world. We ask that the light of the gospel of our hope will shine through our cracks that people will hear us often say we're sorry, we've sinned against them. That people would often see humility in us. People would see that we love the truth and are ready to suffer to say it. We pray that as we do this, the light of the gospel will shine through us. That people will see here is life, here is light, and here is hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Now we're going to sing together as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. And uh, after we sung together...